this morning, we are continuing in our series, The Return of the King. And if you were not here over the, next, the last couple of weeks, you may have come in this morning expecting a traditional Advent message about the birth of Christ. But instead of looking into his first coming, we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at his second coming. And Advent actually means uh, an, an awaiting. And this is where we find ourselves. We're waiting. The people in the Old Testament times were waiting for God's promised Messiah and a, a Savior. And we find ourselves waiting for Jesus as the return of our Lord and our King. And it is a little bit uh, surreal for us to envision that one day Jesus is actually going to return and interrupt this world as we know it and bring everything to an end and usher in God's kingdom where evil is going to be judged and he's going to rule over all things forever and ever. This is what we Christians have waited for since, the, since Jesus first returned to heaven after his resurrection, the advent of the return of the king. And so we find ourselves between these two bookends. Jesus' first uh, advent 2,000 years ago and his future return. We find ourselves in, in, in uh, what's almost like a, a time between. where We still live in a world that's filled with suffering and evil. And it's not only in the news where we see suffering and evil. A lot of this happens uh, in our own homes. And even in our own lives, we experience suffering and pain. And many of us find ourselves in kind of a, a personal time of waiting as we wait on God to answer our prayers. Maybe it's been years waiting for an answer to prayer to bring a much-wanted change into our lives or to bring relief from our pain and suffering. And I think that we all, at times, find ourselves in this time of waiting on God. And it, it does give us hope to think that one day Jesus is going to return and make everything right. But if we're honest, that doesn't bring the kind of comfort that we need as we wait for God to answer prayers today. We may not say it out loud, but we find ourselves asking, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Or we watch the news and we think, like, where is God in all of this, right? My pastor tells me that God watches over me, but sometimes it just doesn't feel like that for me. We're going to look this morning at Daniel chapter 9 and hopefully find some encouragement here that God controls all things, that he not only hears the prayers of his children, but that he has a plan and a timeline that he's unfolding, not only for the world, but actually for each one of us. We're using Daniel as the text for this series. And if there's one theme that seems to emerge from the entire book, it's the sovereignty of God. 
And sovereignty isn't a real everyday word for us. If you were to look up the word sovereignty, it actually means to possess ultimate power that is unlimited in its extent. For those who might have watched the television series, The Crown, you might remember that they would refer to the queen as the sovereign. But this wasn't really the right use of the word because the queen did not have ultimate power. The parliament, the prime minister, they hold the majority of power in Britain. But God truly is sovereign. He does have supreme and ultimate power over all things. And it's easy for us to imagine that God is in control over the good things in our life. But he is sovereign over everything, even the evil. And he's able to use all things, the good and the bad, to achieve his will according to his own divine timeline. We're going to be in Daniel 9 this morning. So just as a reminder to where we are, Daniel and his countrymen have been uh, exiles in Babylon. After centuries of unfaithfulness and disobedience, God has allowed the Babylonian Empire to invade the land, to destroy the city of Jerusalem, and to take many of them back as captives to Babylon. Daniel is now maybe 83 years old, and he's been a captive in Babylon since he was a young teen, which means that he and his people have been captives for about 70 years. They're now living under a new ruler because Babylon has just been invaded by the Medo-Persian armies. Now, as we look at this chapter, you'll see that it's kind of divided into three parts. It opens with Daniel praying on behalf of himself and his fellow countrymen, but his prayer is interrupted by the angel, Gabriel, who delivers him a message. And then in the last portion of the chapter is that message. So we'll begin, Daniel 9, beginning at verse 1, says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel is reading the Old Testament scroll of Jeremiah, and he comes across a passage that actually foretells of the very events that he's been living through, the Jewish people as captives in Babylon. And we find this in Jeremiah 25, and I'm going to take a, a moment to read this, but as I do, I want you to keep in mind that this was written before Daniel was born more than 20 years before Babylon actually invaded Jerusalem. Beginning at verse 8, Jeremiah 25. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt. The astounding thing is that Jeremiah wrote this before the captivity even began. But he didn't only predict the captivity, he also predicted how long it was going to last for 70 years, ending with the destruction of Babylon. So if you can picture this, Daniel is reading this and he thinks to himself, we've been here for 70 years, we've just watched Babylon be invaded, so according to this prophecy, our captivity could be over. So Daniel does what he's so accustomed to. He drops to his knees and pleads before God that he would bring an end to this exile for himself and his people. I just want to just pause for a minute, and I want to say something about predictive prophecy. And we'll be seeing a lot of prophetic writings from Daniel in this series, and now we see another one from Jeremiah. And I find something in John 14 very helpful in helping to understand why God reveals future events to us. Jesus is uh, with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, and he tells them what's about to happen to him that he's going to return to the Father and that he's going to send the Spirit. And then he says something to them. These things I have told you before they come to pass, so that after they come to pass, you might believe. He tells them about future events so that when the events actually take place, it strengthens their faith. And there's several places in the scriptures where God records events before they occur, and he does so to build and to strengthen our faith, to assure us that he's sovereign over all things, even the future. God shows us that he's in control of the future of entire nations in order to say to us, be encouraged, trust me, even over the things in your life. But Daniel just doesn't just jump in with his prayer request. And there's something for us to learn in the way that Daniel prays. He starts by acknowledging the greatness of God. His prayer begins in verse 4. The Lord, uh, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I think that we have to guard against becoming matter of fact in our prayers, and that, that we overlook the majesty and the awesomeness of God when we come to him. We should pause to remember that when we enter into his presence, we're entering into the presence of the single greatest being in all of existence. We can't even begin to comprehend how God so infinitely transcends everything in all of creation. And being in his presence should create in us a sense of astonishment and awe. And then Daniel's prayer turns to confession. 
And I, I've counted at least six, 16 times in the next 11 verses where Daniel confesses that he and his fellow Jews have sinned and disobeyed God. There's no rationalization. There's no attempts to justify himself. Just an admission of guilt and shame for their disobedience. But then finally, at verse 16, Daniel comes and he makes his request to God. Beginning, uh, read at verse 16. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. The time had come, the 70 years of captivity prophesied by Jeremiah were fulfilled, and Daniel prays for God's mercy that he'll restore Jerusalem and the temple. And notice, again, something else in his prayer. He's praying for the fulfillment of God's will. He's aligning his request with God's plan. He's effectively saying, Lord, let your will be done. God has a plan for mankind, and he has a plan for each one of us. And the best plan for our lives is the plan that God has for us. It's not always easy for us to do. But our prayers should always be that God will reveal his plan for our lives to us. That we would find ourselves not in our plan for our lives, but in his plan for our lives. But Daniel's prayer is interrupted in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, in making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, remember the word and understand the vision. While he's still praying, Daniel gets the visit from the angel Gabriel. And this gives us a glimpse into God's throne room as he listens to the prayers of his children. Did you notice that the angel tells Daniel that he's highly esteemed? This is sometimes translated as precious. And this is how God sees us when we come to him in prayer, as a precious, as a precious child. And you, you may not think of yourself this way, but this is the way that God looks at us, as precious. And we know this because we were so precious that he sent his son to die on a cross for us. That's how precious we are to God. God longs for us to come before him 
and he hears all of our prayers. Sometimes he answers immediately. Sometimes he says, not now. And sometimes he just simply says no. But in all cases, how he answers us is always for our good. His answers are always according to his perfect will and plan for us. Here we see that God answered immediately to Daniel. And we're going to see in the message that was delivered to him that it was intended to give Daniel insight and understanding into God's plan for the Jewish captives, but also to reveal future events concerning God's promised anointed one. And then we come to this, the last section of the chapter, the angel's message. The next four verses are considered by some to be the most difficult passage in Daniel. Some say even in the entire Bible. Now, in preparation for this morning, I spent some time looking into the various ways that theologians have understood this passage. And we're not going to look at all of these ways, but instead, for this morning, I want to just key in on those parts where they do agree. And what I hope is that as we look at these, that it'll be a, a blessing for you as it has been for me. Now, some of the more fringe interpretations are held by theologians who don't believe that the Bible actually foretells future events. These more liberal scholars will argue that these things were written after the fact only to just give an appearance that the prophecy predicted the future. And there's a, but there's a lot of evidence that counters this view. And one of the most interesting that I found was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which show an early dating for Daniel, which tends to refute this writing after the fact uh, view. And, and for this reason and for several others, this liberal interpretation is almost universally rejected by conservative scholarship. But even among the conservative scholars, there's disagreement on how parts of these next four verses should be understood. But let me just say, but the one thing that we're going to focus on that's universally agreed on is that Gabriel's message foretells of both the coming and the death of Jesus. We'll begin looking at this in verse 24, which is kind of a summary of what's going to follow in, in verses uh, 25 through 27. Verse 24 of Daniel. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. This term, 77s, refers to a period of time. Some consider this to just be a symbolic, undefined period of time, and some understand it to be an actual period of knowable years. But however we choose to interpret this, whether symbolic or actual years, the message says that during this period of time, six things are going to be accomplished. And we're going to hold off and we're going to come back to the six things in a minute. Verse 25 says, Know and understand this, 
from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now remember, Daniel is still in captivity and the angel says in the future, a decree is going to be given freeing the captives and allowing them to return and to rebuild Jerusalem. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah actually record this return. And it also says that there's a predetermined amount of time between the decree being given to the coming of God's anointed. And it says that that amount of time is said to be seven sevens and 62 sevens. I'll say a bit more about this, but for now, there is agreement by all conservative scholars that the coming of the anointed one mentioned here was fulfilled by Jesus. And then in verse 26, we see the next thing. 26 says that after these 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The anointed one is going to be cut off. This word cut off is the same that's used in Isaiah 53, where he writes about the suffering servant in what so clearly describes Christ's crucifixion. So what's agreed on here is that both of these, the coming of the anointed one and the cutting off of the anointed one were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And this is the most important takeaway for us from these two verses. Now, the, the most challenging thing with these last four verses is how do we understand these periods of time given in the prophecy? It's given to us in this very strange term called sevens. And a discussion on this takes us into waters that are too deep for this morning. So if you're interested in this, if you're interested and would like a little bit more insight into these verses, we have some additional information that hopefully is going to shed a little bit more light on this. If you check the next steps uh, box on the card that you receive when you come in, we'll send that email to you. But, but for now, I want to point out that those who understand this prophecy as speaking of actual years, as opposed to just symbolic, determine that the time that's mentioned here in verse 26 amounts to 483 years. And if you do the calculation and you think of this as pertaining to the dating of Jesus' life and the records of when the Jews were granted permission to return to Jerusalem, it, con it coincides with amazing accuracy to what we see in verse 25. That Christ, the anointed one, would appear 483 years after the decree is given to re turn and rebuild Jerusalem. And I'll add here that this is not a fringe interpretation. This position is held by many reputable theologians and has been the historic traditional interpretation of the Christian church. Now, I said I would come back to the six things listed in verse 24. This disagreement regarding these six things along with events that are mentioned in the last half of 26 and 27, as to whether or not these were fulfilled during the time of Jesus in the and the immediate years right after his death, 
or if they point to future events that have not yet happened. And again, this is beyond what we're going to look at this morning, but I do encourage you to go back and reread this passage with these things in consideration. And again, on the next steps, if you're interested, it'll touch on some of this as well. So, there's no doubt that what's written here is difficult to understand. We've seen some of this prophecy fulfilled, so we understand some of it, but there's still so much of this that remains a mystery to us. But what we can be sure of, though, is that centuries before it happened, God foretold that his anointed one would come and then be cut off, and this was fulfilled in the life and the crucifixion of Jesus. Daniel's prophecy shows God's sovereignty over the course of human history. Jesus was crucified through the actions of Judas, Pilate, and the religious leaders. But the reality is, is that God used these men to achieve his eternal plan of salvation for us. Rather than just being a bystander and watching over the evil in our world, God uses suffering and hardship for his own divine purposes according to his own divine timeline. What stands out for us this morning is that God controls the destiny of all things. When he tells us ahead in detail what he's going to do, like he did with Jeremiah in the 70 years, or through Daniel about the return of the captives, and the coming of the anointed one, it's to assure us that he actually does control all things. And seeing this should reassure us that God has control over all things in our lives, both the good and the bad. He sees the beginning from the end, but we only have a limited view. The pain and the brokenness in our lives, God is able to use as he weaves the tapestry of our lives. Have you ever seen a tapestry? The finished side is a beautiful pattern, but if you, if you flip it over, the threads cross and there's different colors starting and stopping in what only just crudely resembles the finished side. I came across something years ago in my life, and I've, I've thought about it many times, this, this imagery of uh, our lives as a tapestry. It was written by Corrie Ten Boom, who many of you may know her, a godly woman. She was a survivor of the, the, the Nazi Holocaust concentration camp. She wrote, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful and the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, 
He cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Are we willing to leave the choice to him? God wants to be the weaver of our, of our lives. And he's weaving a master plan for creation and he wants to include you. God has a master plan. And do you know what God's master plan is? What his ultimate will is for this world and for all of creation? Paul tells us in Ephesians. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. His ultimate will is that all things would be brought together in Christ. This is why we exist. This is why all of creation exists, to bring everything together in Christ. If we want to be woven into God's eternal plan, we need to be in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Is he the savior of your life? If you say yes, then I ask you this, are we discipling others to grow in Christ? Are we intentionally being Christ-like in our social circles so that we might endear and inspire others to come to Christ? Are we helping others to mature in their walk with Christ? Does this sound familiar? It's the teaching from our last series, A Life-Giving Church. We Christians are awaiting the return of our King. And until that time, we serve our Lord as faithful citizens of his kingdom, resting in the knowledge that he is in sovereign control over all things. Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled to be able to come into your presence, into your throne room, and to, to pray. We're thankful that we have this access because of the grace that's given to us through the death of your Son on our behalf. Help us, Father, to, to grow in our faith and to find true peace as we entrust, as we entrust the, the tapestry of our lives to you, knowing that you give the very best to look to those who leave the choice to you. May these truths bring us to new levels in our walk with you. And we give you thanks only because we have access to you through your son, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen.